Well, if you want to grab your uh, Bibles, we're going to be, again, in Titus 2, 11 through 14 this Sunday. Last Sunday, I, we started a sermon series, a, a little mini-series for this Christmas season as we're preparing our hearts for Christmas through Titus 2, 11 through 14. And of course, as I said last Sunday, in Titus 2.11, it speaks about the grace of God that appeared, that brings salvation to all people. And that's a, a reference to Christmas past, the appearing of Christmas in the past. And then verse 12 says that that appearance of grace, that very first Christmas when Jesus emerged on the scene, has trained us to say no to, un, to worldliness and, and all kinds of bad stuff and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Well, that's Christmas present. And then verse 13 says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the great and glorious appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. And of course, that's Christmas's future. Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And to prepare our hearts for Christmas, we're going to break it out over last Sunday, this Sunday, and next to talk about how those wonderful truths really do shape uh, the Christian hope and the way that we celebrate Christmas this year. I was, uh, and this morning when we talk about verse 12, I, I've really been thinking about this a lot. It, Christmas is just one of the busiest seasons on the calendar, isn't it? For most people. Uh, Christmas is just full of lots of stuff to do, and as Christmas is coming down, especially I've got five kids, so um, I have a to-do list, things that need to get done before December 25th rolls around, and uh, most of them Sarah does, <laughs> and I just cheer her on, you're doing great, but, <laughs> but I thought to myself, I don't need to give these people more to do, right? Not at Christmas. And you're in luck. This morning, I'm not going to really talk about doing much of anything. Because really, that's not the point of what we're going to talk about this morning. Years ago, uh, when I was pastoring in Florida, that church was going through a particularly difficult time. And the Lord laid it on my heart in about as clear a way as God has ever communicated to me that we were to go through the book of Galatians together as a church. And so for six months, half a year, we went verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Galatians. And do you know it's not until almost the end of that book that Paul ever instructs those people to do a single thing? It got frustrating for me as a pastor, because you kept wanting to bring it around to a place of application where you're like, okay, here's what you do now with what we've been learning. And verse after verse, chapter after chapter, week after week, month after month, Paul didn't talk about that they should do anything but who they be in their hearts. This was the main point, and that was really convicting to me as I studied it. And Christmas is all about doing stuff for many of us. But this morning, I'm going to talk about our motives for what we do. I think this is paramount. This is the most important thing from God's perspective. And it's not that doing isn't important. It's just the humble recognition that doing what we do only matters if it flows from who we be. Right? I mean, in the, in the love chapter... 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about doing a lot of wonderful things. Like if you gave all your money to the poor, but you have not love, 
What does the Bible say about you? You gain nothing. You are nothing. All your singing and music, if you have not love, it's just noise. It's nothing. And so really when we talk about Christianity, the motive behind what we do is paramount. It's what matters supremely. And what we read here in, uh, in verse 12 is very important. It says it trains us to say no to certain things and to say yes to others. And the word I really keyed in, keyed in on this week is that word train. <laughs> How does the grace of God train us to say no to worldly passions and to say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. How does it train us? I have a dog at home, and I have two training tools for that dog. Anger <laughs> and treats. That's it. <laughs> that's, my, that's my whole toolbox when it comes to training my dog. And when the dog poops on the floor, I give it anger. And when it does poops outside, I give it a treat. And that trains the dog, right? And the question really is, how is God training us to say no to worldly passions and to say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives? And here's something really important to see. Last week, we talked a lot about Ebenezer Scrooge from Dickens' classic book, A Christmas Carol. But here is the thing I love about Scrooge's transformation. It's that after the three spirits visited him overnight, he did not just stop saying and doing things that were miserly, right? He actually became, at heart, not as mean and miserly anymore. And there's a world of difference, isn't there, between doing something from the heart and doing something because you're afraid you'll just get in trouble. Anybody who reads the Bible with any, any degree of intellectual honesty would have to concede that Christianity is not about behavior modification. Not merely that. No, the gospel is all about the transformation of the heart. And we can see this very easily when we translate these things to our own relationships. Christian parents, tell me, which do you want more? For your child to come to church with you or for your child to want to come to church? Which do you want more? Oh, the answer is easy. We all know that we could, by twisting arms, threatening to not let them have internet time or something, we can get them in the building. But you cannot threaten your child into a place of desiring to come to church. Come to a place where if I didn't go to church, would my child go without me? How wonderful would that be? But consistently, our culture puts the emphasis on what we do rather than who we be. Consistently, our culture says, if you get the job done, it doesn't really matter how you feel about it particularly. The heart doesn't matter so much as what you do. 
And, and I'll illustrate this, and it's a bit of a controversial example, but I remembered it was really rammed home very clearly to me. This is about five years ago, February 15, 2014. There was a star running back for the Baltimore Ravens at the time. His name was Ray Rice. And he was captured on a hotel surveillance camera inside an elevator beating his wife. It was pretty savage. It was hard to watch, actually. And in the days that came after the ensuing scandal, a number of television personalities, I like to watch ESPN, and a lot of those sports analysts posed the question, should football players be considered role models? And implied in the question is the idea that our obligation to do right is really kind of commensurate to the number of people who are witnesses to our behavior. And to a point, I agree. I mean, if a person is given a stage, that person certainly has an obligation to use it to promote virtue. But at the time, and even now, it, it strikes me that all this role model talk is indicative of a society that has really taken, taken its eyes off of God. As long as we emphasize being a role model over being a person of true character, we are placing the first importance on how we appear rather than who we actually are. And this only encourages good behavior when people are watching. For example, someone might say, I would never smoke dope at work or in front of my employer. Or you might hear a parent who says, well, I wouldn't watch that movie with my kids in the room. I wouldn't use that kind of language around the kids. And this pervasive outlook that our conduct only becomes an issue if it's witnessed makes virtue optional in the privacy of our hearts or in hotel elevators. The result is a society of Jekyll and Hyde's who are saints abroad and devils at home. The essence of character is what we do and don't do when we are alone with only God as a witness. As Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so it's a sobering thing to realize right now that we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of God. He sees the reality. But then comes the question, how does God train us? <laughs> what is his tool for making us into the kind of the people who from the heart say no to, un to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And I believe that the way he does that is by giving us new desires. That's why when we talk about Christmas present, I'm not going to give you a to-do list this morning, but a to-be list, I guess. Uh, the, what's really important is not what we do, but why we do it. So let's talk about motives this morning. You might recall the story from Luke 24 of the time when the resurrected Jesus revealed himself to the, do, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
After Jesus, Jesus appears to these two disciples, they're walking along the road to Emmaus, and a figure, they don't instantly recognize him as Jesus, begins to walk along with them. And as they walk, he's opening the scriptures to them, and then later, he mysteriously disappears. And when he disappears, the two disciples turn to each other, and in retrospect, they give the proof for how they knew it was Jesus who they had been hanging with. They say this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to, talked to us on the road, while he opened us to us the scriptures? The burning in their hearts. That speaks of delight and a stirring of their emotions. When a person puts their trust in Jesus for salvation, it's not just their standing before God that has changed. But they themselves become radically and permanently changed in their innermost being. They become, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. And that means that in part they will be given by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit new desires, new passions, and a new love for righteousness. Now don't be alarmed. It's not like overnight somebody flips a switch and all of a sudden all your old desire for sin is totally gone. <laughs> we, we are constantly trying to put off the old man and to put on the new. There's a war within us. And by the Holy Spirit's power, we are by degrees winning. We're making progress over time. But you still are in the process of tearing down those strongholds of sin. So don't, look at, don't do an internal inventory and say, well, man, I still love some sins. Maybe I'm not a believer. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying, is that war happening? <laughs> do, do you have growing passions for righteousness that conflict with the old man desires for sin? The Christian life is not presented in the Bible as a choice between being holy or being happy. As though following Jesus is all about a joyless path of self-denial. Amazingly, when the encounter with Jesus is real, when we have been transformed, our hearts burn with new passions that by degrees replace our old sinful ones. Last week, we talked about the description of Christmas past contained in Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace, of course, is a uniquely Christian doctrine that means the free, unmerited favor of God. It's our belief that a person is not saved on the basis of their own good works, their own personal righteousness, but rather that they are saved by their trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ who took our place on the cross. That's grace. And that's a uniquely Christian idea. However, someone might wonder, if salvation isn't earned by works, by doing right, I'll just enjoy sin and trust that Jesus will pick up the tab. Salvation has nothing to do with me, so why not just do whatever I want? This is precisely the idea that Paul is countering in Romans 6, 1 through 2. He says this, What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? 
So the very next verse, after talking about the grace of God has appeared, that free, unmerited favor of God that you can't get by doing, right after that verse where Paul makes clear reference to grace as what brings salvation, he then follows that with verse 12. And he says very clearly that that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Again, works are never presented in God's words as the means by which we obtain God's favor. But when we have put our trust in Jesus for salvation, and that has come to live in our hearts, there will also come an accompanying hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is the fruit of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All who have become Christians, the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence within them. And if no such hunger or thirst for righteousness exists, no such change has occurred. Grace is not just pardon for the sinful people that we were, but it is also power to live as a new creation. Through the Holy Spirit, we gain the capacity for a radical new way of living. We gain the capacity for new desires, new passions. And although we remain imperfect, and at times we will succumb to the allure of sin and temptation, we no longer delight in those sins in an unchecked way as we once did. It's really important to recognize that becoming a Christian is more than just giving intellectual assent to certain truths. Satan believes every word of the gospel. He just hates it. And that's really, I think, something for us to entertain and think about. It is the birth within us of new passions and new desires. Do our hearts soar at the thought of who God is in his law? And we come again, and we see this in our text for this morning. The new passions and new desires. I'm going to read all uh, four verses, and then I'm going to cue, uh, key in on one word here. Verse 11, Christmas past. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possess possession who are zealous for good works. And the word I want you to see in there is zealous for good works. Who are not grudgingly doing good works, who are not dutifully doing what they should, but in purifying for himself a people for his own possession, we become zealous for what is right. If you have the King James Version in your lap right now, when it says a people for his own possession, it says a peculiar people, which a lot of people make jokes about. But in Old English, to be a peculiar people is to be peculiar in who you belong to, peculiarly somebodies, <laughs> Right? And so when it's talking about becoming a people for his own possession, it says you become one of Jesus' people, his own possession. And um, I don't know, have many, 
how many of you, just by show of hands, have ever traveled in a foreign country besides Canada? Anybody? We have a lot of international travelers here. Just think in your mind, what are some things that make you stand out as an American in a foreign country? Lots of things. Uh, the way you talk, you have an accent. Even in England, where they are fellow English speakers, they can instantly peg you as a Yank, right? Maybe it's the ubiquitous use of baseball caps among our male population. You know, that's not an international thing. There's lots of things that just peg us, mark us as Americans when we're traveling in foreign countries. People can see, and if they can't see at first, as soon as they begin to interact with us, it quickly becomes apparent, I'm dealing with a foreigner. Or even more specifically, I'm dealing with an American. And something happens to you when you become a Christian too. The Bible says that Christians are foreigners in exile on the earth. That's the language of Hebrews. You are pilgrims and sojourners. And the question is, what are those things that instantly peg you as a foreigner here in the eyes of the world? As a Christian in your workplace, do you speak with the accent of truth? Are you clothed in righteousness, as it were? Is there the aroma of Christ about you as you go about your business at family gatherings and professionally or at school or just in the midst of your neighborhood? What are those things that instantly cause onlookers to peg you as that's a Jesus person for sure? We were just talking this morning in our prayer time. Uh, there's a wonderful group of people. They meet faithfully every Sunday morning at 8. Would love to have you join us. We pray every Sunday for the witness of our church in the community, for the bringing in of the lost here in our own area, and for world missions. And just afterwards, we were sitting around talking, and we were just talking how so many um, one of our friends, my friends in that group had been listening to a podcast and was kind of shocked at some of the language the podcaster was using. It was a Christian podcast. And just the idea that sometimes Christians just become so assimilated that there's no recognizing them as somebody who's different, belonging from a different culture. And what how, in Christianity, how do we stand out? Well, I think verse 12 is one of those things that offers a very succinct, concise description of what makes us different as we navigate the culture that we're living in. Saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's a rare impulse in the lives of many today, to say no. But Christianity is never just a minimalist religion. We're not just about not doing stuff. We're not just salt. We're also light. We also are excitedly zealous, enthusiastic about saying yes to certain things. We're lovers of being upright, godly, self-controlled. These are things that peg us in the eyes of others as Jesus' followers. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. How do we make our God visible? Verse 12 says it. That's it. That's how we make our God visible. 
And the grace of God trains us to live in that way. And what, what we need to see this morning as far as our motive for doing good works is that feeling zeal means that there is enthusiasm and passion and desire as the driving motive behind what we are doing. And this is the very opposite of what Santa Claus does. <laughs> you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Sing it, Travis. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Everybody, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Stop. <laughs> I would keep going, but it's obviously not a worship song. Right? I mean, you rearrange the words in Santa, you let it get one. <laughs> in some ways, that song talks about Santa like how Christians sometimes talk about Jesus, right? Santa Claus is coming to town. Jesus is coming back. Santa knows if you've been bad or good. Hebrews 4.13, Jesus is an all-knowing judge. We're all naked and exposed before him. Santa is making a list and checking it twice. Is there anywhere in the Bible that speaks of our names being on a list? Yeah. Re Revelations 20 for one, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But here's a big difference. <laughs> Santa, if you've been bad, puts a lump of coal in your stocking. Your standing before Satan is your own personal righteousness. Did I say Satan or Santa? It's the same. <laughs> oh, no. I can't wait to get the emails on Monday morning. Kids, that was a joke. <laughs> um, no, but okay, listen. Your standing before Santa is how good a person you are. So there's reason for worry. There's reason for concern. He knows if you're sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sakes. If you're not good enough, you're going to get cold. How different is that from the gospel? 180 degrees. We know that we've been bad. That is why we pin all of our hope on the goodness of Jesus. There is no lump of coal coming because Jesus ate all the coal on the cross. That's it. Now all of his reward is coming our way, and it has nothing to do with your goodness. And that's how it trains you. Have you ever thought about these words from 1 John 4.18 in this way? It says, there is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What that is saying, Jesus said elsewhere in Scripture that if you love me, you will keep my commands. And what this is saying in this verse, which is a really good companion verse for that one, is that fear has to do with punishment. If you are keeping my commands because you fear wrath, then you haven't yet understood what Jesus did on the cross. And really, because Jesus has removed the specter of a coming day of wrath, all of your obedience is able to be given to him because you love. Grace of God trains us to truly give God what's something that we wouldn't give to him if he threatened it out of us, which is our heartfelt response. And that's very important. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to wade right now very dangerously into political theory. <laughs> Always uh, hesitate as a pastor to do this, if you ever become a pastor. But generally, as a citizen, I like laws that say don't do a bad thing. And I'm opposed to laws that say you must do right. I'll give you an example. I think it's a good law for our governments to say you should never hit a pedestrian with your car. That should be against the law. But I would not like a law that said if you have a car, you have to use it to give people without cars a ride. Now, that might sound counterintuitive at first because I'm a pastor, and I really strongly encourage people, if you have a car, use it to be a blessing and a help to others. But the reason why I don't like that as a law is this. It amounts to the death of virtue. Virtue is predicated on choice, right? Virtue is predicated on me saying, this is right, I love doing right, I'm going to do it. So what happens when the government at point of gun or fine or whatever says, you have to do right or else? Then doing right becomes something I have to do. It's grudging, it's obligated. And what would happen if God said, you do right or I'm going to get you when I come back? Would you be motivated to do right under those circumstances because you are zealous for good works? Or out of fear that on Christmas morning you would find coal in your stocking? <laughs> so when God says, I'm taking away the stick, and I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to flood you with new passions, new desires, you now have the capacity, the ability to choose what's right out of zeal. And frighteningly, you also have the free will to say, I don't want to do that. And so something we need to see this year as far as Christmas present, what motives behind our doing are pleasing to God is that we be zealous for good work. Zealous. God doesn't care if it gets done so much as he cares the spirit with which we do it. 
And these really are the days between. The Christian life is marked always by looking back and looking forward. On the basis of these four verses, I think it's fair to say that the incentive and power to live a Christian life pleasing to God comes from two directions. It comes from looking back with gratitude to the grace of God that appeared in Christ Jesus at his first coming when he purchased our redemption. And it comes from looking forward with hope to the glory of God that will appear at the second coming when he completes our redemption. It's looking back to Jesus, whose words and example, life and ministry are faithfully recorded in the Bible that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He showed us the way. And now as Christians, we walk in the light of his example. And we look forward to his coming. Not because, not like in the way that Santa Claus is coming to town, with uh, some trepidation perhaps, has my balance of good works earned me a full plump stocking or a limp one with some coal in the bottom? That's not how we relate to Jesus. He took our sin and gave us his reward. There are riches that are to be inherited by all those who are co-heirs with Jesus. But we also remember that after Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again, he appeared to his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven. His disciples watched as he ascended, and after he had disappeared from sight, two angels appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Today we live in the days between the days between Jesus' first coming and his second one. In the first advent, he came as the grace of God that brings salvation, a sacrificial lamb. But in the second advent, he will not return as a lamb, but as a lion, a judge and king to rule. And the holding of these two things in balance is important. For example, we know about a group of people who were very religious. They're talked about in the Bible who believed in a coming day of judgment. Those are the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. That was really what separated them from the Sadducees, or one of the things. But their belief in a coming day when they would stand before the throne of judgment was not paired with any knowledge of the grace of God appearing. And we see how that, how that trained them. We also see in the Bible examples of people who had knowledge of the first advent, but not the second one. For example, in Matthew 24, we read these words. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, 
But if the wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. So we have these two things. We have the grace, and it has trained us. And we have a future expectation of his return. And in holding those two things together, that really does inform how we live in the present. There is a day of reward coming. And there is a day in the past where it was made possible. And between those two great comings of the Lord, we are trained to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have taken our sins and in Christ you have put them as far away from us as the east is from the west. Father, you have made a bold statement to sinful wayward people. You have told us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, that's like telling a bunch of criminals that there are no doors in the prison. But Father, you have done more than just inform us of that. You have given us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've given us new passions, new desires. You've given us a radical new capacity to live for you. And Father, those former things that we enjoyed before coming to the knowledge of grace we now feel regret and shame over, repentance from it. Father, we, even as we struggle to put off the old man, God, we desire more and more to be like the God who saved us. Father, I pray that you would grow these desires within us. I pray that this Christmas season, as we reflect on the grace that appeared at Bethlehem all those years ago, Father, that you would, by your love, by the knowledge of your grace, Train us to live in a way that's different than the surrounding culture. Father, train us by your love to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And give us a love, God, for living in a self-controlled, upright, and godly way. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would cause delight in those things to grow within us. To such extent, Lord, that our love for sin looks shabby. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.